Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Guys, I am very pleased to announce that this episode is sponsored by Ireland's most trusted fitness equipment store, RPM Power. You can check out their range of equipment on their website or at their showroom in Thurles. I use some of their equipment myself. I've got an assault bike, a treadmill and some adjustable dumbbells alongside a foldable bench. It's great. You can work out from home. Very affordable, very, very high quality Throughout the COVID pandemic, it helped me to keep on top of my fitness goals. If you want to check them out, you can use the coupon code FUELBETTER10 to get a 10% discount across their entire range. So thanks again to RPM Power. Let's get on with the show. I guess I'll just hit record and start like I usually do with these podcast episodes. Today, I want to talk about something that came up in clinic yesterday, and it just really struck me. And, you know, if you follow me on social media, you know that I'm quite vocal and transparent about my my beliefs and thoughts about, I guess, the culture in sport and some of the mindsets around sport and the pressure that athletes or people with athletic endeavors face to have certain appearances or to to fuel or not fuel as it were in a certain way to i guess give some context to this yesterday i was speaking with a client of mine on the coaching program and this client was i guess starting to wrap her head around the idea that oh no it's actually quite important to fuel and despite the fact that I'm consuming more than I historically thought I should have, I can see the benefits and reap the rewards and it enables me to show up better in other aspects of my life. My energy levels are better, I can sleep better, maybe I'm in better form. But one of the resistance points, despite having all of that evidence, all of that evidence that fueling really helps, this patient had a friend a running partner who was significantly faster than her so it was a good runner and over time it had popped up a few times that my patient had noticed this fast runner doesn't really fuel an awful lot in training and the other day when we were training together She commented on the amount of gels I was taking and suggested that it was too much. And I just thought that was interesting. So I wanted to start a bit of a conversation about that today, about the, I guess, perceptions that we have 
about what sports nutrition should look like, what's good, what's bad, and about how we, I guess, in our own way, trying to figure out what's best for us, take on information and who we take it from. So let's let's dive into it. I think you should find this episode interesting. If you are in a running club or a triathlon club or an anything sports club, I guarantee you some of the tropes in this will be pretty common. So if you know if you found this interesting or insightful, please do let me know. Please tell a friend, share it, you know, leave a review, all that jazz. It all helps. So let's let's dive into this a little bit deeper. And before I get really, I guess, into statistics and science and all that type of stuff, I want to share a personal anecdote. So some of you might know that before I became a sports dietitian and started the Fuel Better podcast and the Southeast Nutrition Clinic and all that, I actually did track and field at a very high level. I competed for Ireland, European and World Championship levels. I left the sport when I ended up watching a couple of major championships that I hadn't qualified for and I kind of thought it's time to hang my boots up. That's neither here nor there. Very specifically, I remember as a teenager, I think it was about 15 or 16, I was training for, it was probably the World Youth Championships or possibly the European Junior Championships the following year. And despite, you know, being a student athlete, being young, having a balanced diet, doing 70 to 80 kilometers a week, plus some gym work and cross training, someone thought it was helpful. They thought it was helpful that they were doing me a solid by telling me the following when they saw me eating a dairy milk. They said, hey, you shouldn't be eating that. I thought you were an athlete. And I guess at 15, my clinical faculties probably weren't overly developed at that point. And I thought, Jesus, maybe they're right. Maybe I shouldn't be eating this. And maybe maybe there's a certain way athletes should eat. And you can probably see where I'm going with this. The mantra and the rhetoric that athletes must eat clean is absolutely everywhere. Like, I absolutely hate going to nutrition talks. I give them. I generally don't like going to them unless it's by a very qualified professional. Because what you'll have otherwise is someone who was moderately successful in their sport or just old school in thinking. And they'll say, right, guys, diet. It has to be clean. You know, no chocolate. Cut out the takeaways. No no pizza, none of that. And to be honest... It's just not accurate at all. And one, one of the rhetorical questions I would ask someone when they bring up, I guess, that type of ideology is uh, if they're aware of the evidence base to promote or support that, that's, um, that argument. And they'll say no. And they're right, because there is no evidence to support that. Because no nobody who works in, I guess science research sports science thinks that whether you eat a bar of chocolate or not or have an occasional takeaway or not nobody thinks really that that's relevant for sports performance that's a cultural cultural belief 
not a scientific fact. However, it doesn't take long. If you go onto social media, you'll find 10 pricks a penny who will say things like clean eating, you know, only organic, or even they'll, they'll promote something very specific like veganism or intermittent fasting or paleo or Christ, I've even had a few of them recently, carnivore dieters as the best way to improve athletic performance. So all of this is to say, first and foremost, when you look at sporting populations, there is a generally accepted belief amongst most people in my experience that for me to be a good athlete, I must eat clean. And whatever that means to the person is generally the set of restrictions they put on themselves. Sometimes this comes and it applies to carbohydrates. Carbohydrates are bad. You know, that's that's a difficult thing to reconcile if you're trying to do endurance sports. If you feel carbs are bad and they're forbidden and you can't have them, you're probably not going to get very far or not get anywhere very fast either at the same time. So pe- people can find that to be a challenging barrier to overcome. Similarly, people will be under the belief that sugar is bad and sugar is kind of like how you pay for exercise that's that's your you know your your ticket to the to the fairground as it were and if if you don't pay for your ticket or if you don't pay your bills the exercise will not be not be very enjoyable worse still it'll be counterproductive or possibly even bad for your health so that's probably something i'll do more specifically in another episode but you know, underfueling training or not consuming enough carbohydrates in and around training has some very demonstrable short and long-term effects on your physical health. Not a good thing to do. Anyways, this this barrier comes up with things like gels, sports drinks, products, because they're either A, full of sugar, B, very processed, or C, sure you can do without them or that something natural would be better, like a banana or dried fruit. So that's the first obstacle my patient had to overcome, looking at doing the opposite to what her peers believe. And that, that kind of brought me to a, another point as well. Um, and just by the way, if, if you, you know, if you yourself think, I need to eat clean to be a good athlete, just look for evidence of it, or at least try and find something to support your belief or challenge your belief try eating a i don't know something like a pack of jellies before a workout and see how see how it goes i'd be surprised if it didn't go pretty well due to the carb content in them so it's it's perceptions we're fighting against perceptions here all the time pretty much non-stop that's that's one part of it another interesting part of this is we take on the beliefs and opinions of people that we trust or look up to. So I guess what what's a what's a good soundbite here? You know, choose your your heroes or your mentors or your teachers wisely. I guess you know. I can recall when I was doing my master's thesis, it was nutrition knowledge amongst athletes. I studied race walkers because that's where I'm from you know and in race walking cohorts and other sporting cohorts 
athletes generally score about a D to a C minus around the 50% mark or less when you actually give them standardized quizzes and questionnaires and grade them for nutrition knowledge and anything from, from health to supplements to sports physiology to sports nutrition. Bluntly put, generally speaking, they haven't a clue. And that extends to all sports. Generally, athletes will score somewhere between 40 and 60% from what I can recall across all sports. And it doesn't delineate. That can be inter-county footballers. It can be Olympic athletes. And it can even be coaches. And the only, I guess, delineating factor between those who scored high and those who did not was historical background or formal qualifications in the world or realm of nutrition. That's the only thing that set people apart in terms of how well they scored. And I I preface my next point with this because what I'm about to say is that most likely the people who you look up to, the brilliant athlete in your club, the coach that's had a couple of hits, maybe a couple of national medalists, maybe they've managed to send a few athletes over to the States on scholarships. Statistically speaking, unless they're dietitians or have qualifications in nutrition, they have absolutely no idea what they're talking about once they delve into the world and the realm of food and or nutrition. So that's that's really important. Be very careful who and where you get your information from. If you value performance and if that's, you know, that's kind of how, how you value someone's opinion, how good of a runner or a cyclist or a triathlete they are, try to delineate that from the quality of the information that they give out or their opinions. Just because they can qualify for high level competitions does not mean they are qualified to give nutrition advice, nor should you try to mimic them. So again, and I'm going to go back to this patient case here. My patient said something along the lines of, well, this athlete, she's really good, much quicker than me. She can just go for a run and she might take one gel beforehand, but might take nothing during. And she could go for, I don't remember specifically, but 90 minutes, two hours, something along those lines. And then she said something interesting and she gets away with this. She gets away with it. So she doesn't feel, and my patient's perception was that she gets away with it. And I think that's very interesting. And it, it brings up a cool point in that <clears throat> when you look at an athlete or when you see someone training, it's easy to be in awe of someone who's very good at what they do. But you can have multiple health issues. You can have reds and run quickly. So just because you're able to run fast, cycle quick, swim hard, whatever your sport is, that doesn't mean you're healthy. And I got, I remember I used to do this, you know, if I was ever worried if my health was declining, I'd go and train as hard as I could. And I'd say, well, if I was sick, I wouldn't be able to do that. And it's just a poor yardstick. And I thought it was just really interesting that they can get away with it. I've heard so many people say something similar to that, 
when I'm suggesting that they fuel in workouts where they feel it's unnecessary, you know, they, they'd almost expect me to stand up and applaud them when someone might say something like, oh, you know, I'm able to do a two or three hour run without fueling. And my response is generally not as enthusiastic. It's like, well, okay, I could technically, like I could train flat out every day, but it probably wouldn't be overly productive. I probably wouldn't progress at the same rate I should. I could, I, I, I could train in the snowstorm. I could, you know, fly to the Arctic Circle and train balls naked in a snowstorm. That'd be a bad idea. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. And I, I don't know exactly why this phenomenon exists in endurance sports. It's almost like a bravado thing. Everybody's trying to be David Goggins these days. You don't need to make this unnecessarily difficult. And just because you can do a two-hour run without fueling really does not mean you should do that for, for a couple of reasons. Number one, you know, if performance is really your thing, and if that's what you really genuinely care about, it doesn't make sense to dig such a big hole for you to recover from. So when you don't fuel in a workout, the recovery takes an awful lot longer. You're, you're extending that. You may also be putting bone health at risk. You may also be putting yourself in a more likely position to have iron deficiency. You may also be harming your endocrine and reproductive health. So those are all demonstrable short and long-term health effects from training in a very low energy or very low glycogen availability. And quick side note, what that means is low energy availability is when you look at someone's overall calorie intake for the day and you subtract the training costs, we have ways and means of assessing if, if what you're left with is enough to kind of pay your biological ESP bill and support all of your healthy functions. You can, all, you can meet your needs, but you can do it in a poor, poor manner. So what I'm getting at here is, let's say I give you sets of macros to hit on my fitness pal. I hate doing that, but let's say I do that and you hit them, but you've done it by eating like one massive meal and you're intermittent fasting and you're training fasted. That wouldn't be good. So the, the amount of food you eat also matters alongside the pattern, especially around training. So if your energy or very specifically your carbohydrate intake, that's what glycogen intake is or glycogen availability refers to. It's how much carb have you on hand to pay for the work you're doing. It basically in summation if you're training after a period where you haven't eaten much and maybe not not eating quick enough after a workout or if your carb intake is low in and around that exercise period all of those health effects i mentioned a moment ago you increase your risk for all of them almost instantaneously um long term as well high cholesterol can be a problem just to note i thought that was that's an interesting finding. Um, but back to, back to my topic. In endurance sports, because the level of inertia is very low, you can put one foot in front of the other. You can pedal your bike. You know, you can, you can swim a length. If you were weightlifters and you tried to train in that manner, or if you were a high jumper, a sport that demands absolute peak power outputs, 
very, very explosive, or if you were a rower, for example, you simply might not be able to do the work. It will be more obvious, quicker. And because, because people can do the work, they can do easy training and be grossly underfueled. It's almost now a badge of honor that look at me, I'm brilliant. I can train without taking on fuel. And just because I can, that must mean I should. Or even better still, some people use it as a yardstick to estimate how well trained they are. I can do X hours fasted. That must mean I'm a brilliant athlete. And in theory, yes, the fitter you are, the better you're able to cope with being underfueled and the, the better you're able to oxidize fat, especially at lower intensities. So you might appear to get away with this. But I, I just thought it would be helpful to point out a couple of things that when when a runner might say, well, this person doesn't fuel and gets away with it means they can successfully complete a run at a lower intensity without any obvious detrimental effects on their health and well-being while I'm with them, which is for maybe two or three hours. What you don't see, however, is maybe that person's blood work, maybe their bone mineral density. I've had no less than three pretty good runners in the last month, all under the age of 35, all female as it happens, with osteoporosis. In normal healthy populations, osteoporosis is not something that's really supposed to pop up or be present until you're maybe 60 plus um, <clears throat> and that can be a direct legacy effect of underfueling. and you can't look at someone and think this person has osteoporosis or relative energy deficiency syndrome or in relative energy deficiency in sport I should say um, think of it like athlete malnutrition because people start from all different physical and aesthetic baselines there's no universally agreed upon physical look that someone is malnourished or they're not eating enough so that's that's one thing many many lay athletes do not have low body fat levels to, to begin with you know so they think i have the the buffer here so you can you can experience the ill effects of under fueling at any part of the bmi scale so that's that's important to note and I, I guess it's, it's important to bear in mind that you, you can't see someone's health. People are very good at masking and managing things and living with things. Um, so just the next time you see someone you look up to, a good runner, a high-level athlete, and you think they're under fueling, don't, don't think that they're getting away with it. They're definitely not just re-evaluate how you measure what does getting away with it mean is getting away with it they can run quickly despite not under fueling or is getting away with it wow this person is in superb health which you will never know unless you're their doctor or whatever um but redefine what getting away with it means for you just because you can do faster training should you is it a good thing is it a helpful thing is it a desirable thing? Does it promote your performance? It will be a discussion worth having with your coach. But to to be honest, it's something I would actively discourage in pretty much all of my patients. The, the research is pretty clear on it that you don't really need to do faster training to, you know, 
be a better athlete and there's there's only generally peril associated with lower carb diets and sports or under fueling in sports not benefit so that's that's something to bear in mind what what do you mean by this person is getting away with this food for thought my final point in this episode i guess rant it feels like but hopefully you're finding this interesting my final thought here and i'm going to go back to this client patient conversation the patient's friend the good runner expressed comments and made comments on the patient's behavior oh that's quite a lot of gels you're having you know that that's a little bit much i don't think that's nothing i think face value that's someone trying to be helpful what i really think is happening there is that's um possibly an athlete getting defensive and and what i like i'll give some context to this and why why i think that but i'll rewind for a moment if we look at sports and specifically lean sports endurance sports where you know being lean or having a kind of low body weight is generally beneficial and it is for endurance sports to be honest it it does help or at least it's championed and pushed if we look at those sports specifically okay eating disorders occur at roughly three times the prevalence rate to gen pop so there's about three times more people with eating disorders anorexia bulimia possibly binge eating etc in in that sphere and there are immeasurable immeasurably more people who engage in disordered eating so it's not quite an eating disorder but maybe they're not consuming anything before training because they listened to a podcast that said they shouldn't or recently i've come across athletes who have switched to ketogenic diets again because they listened to a podcast and it affected their their well-being their their lifestyle their ability to recover so it's a disordered eating pattern it's not an eating disorder and that that's kind of a an education thing sometimes it's ideology sometimes people identify with their diets which can be hard so you you might have that going on you might have people who have come across who they believe or someone who they believe to be well informed and well intended maybe that person is and as a result they've began and now identify with their way of eating ketogenic diets veganism paleo intermittent fasting <clears throat> whatever it uh, it doesn't matter so you, you'll have a bunch of people who try and apply those types of diets in the realm of sport where it's inherently disordered because it negatively impacts that person's health but it's not an eating disorder so you have that going on and then you have the the general i guess sense of normative discontent that happens to everybody where people are generally dissatisfied with their body image and some people take up running or they go on health kicks purely to make themselves look better and hope that that will make them feel better about themselves and that that may be where the defensive element comes in you know if if your self-esteem is in any way tied up with your running performance your physical appearance your aesthetics your pbs etc 
and you have a set of beliefs that well I have to avoid carbs I can't have too much sugar you know fasted training burns more fat helps you lose more fat if you see someone that you know doesn't follow your set of rules that can feel like a threat or a challenge and I think that in some cases when you have another athlete who most likely has no background in nutrition medical field etc and they challenge you consuming carbs or gels or generally applying evidence-based and appropriate sports nutrition guidelines around training they're getting defensive because you are challenging some of their maladaptive cognitions or disordered beliefs and they might suggest you stop or they'll try and discourage you and I say this because it can be very difficult and I, I try to put myself in my patient's shoes often in that it's very easy for me to say to a patient when I'm on zoom with them or when they're in the clinic to say listen you know you gotta you gotta start fueling here it's really important and for them to agree but when you're out running with your peer group and maybe people you're more familiar with who may have more sway over you I guess or not not too sure how to to word my thoughts there but if every other opinion or voice you hear on the matter is discouraging you might feel at the very least conflicted or ambiguous about what to do and that's something I hear a lot you'll read an article online you might read an odd research paper you'll follow a couple of professionals like myself on social media but your friends your family your peers will tell you conflicting things and it's it's hard to know who to turn to and and where to go and who to trust so my only advice here if you have been applying appropriate sensible sports situation guidelines and that looks like eating carbs eating them often eating around training not doing fasted training taking adequate fuel and hydration on your runs walks jogs whatever it is you do if someone is challenging that bear in mind that what you may be witnessing is you being a threat to someone who may have an eating disorder disordered eating body image issues or maladaptive cognitions and they may feel threatened so try not to number one compare yourself to others and what they do they probably don't get away with it if they're under fueling. Number two, try not to let others influence you. You know, if you want advice on this, you should talk to a professional, someone who's either a registered dietitian that I, I guess has a background in sports or works in the field of sports nutrition. Ideally, someone with SENR accreditation. So I am an SENR accredited dietitian. And what that means is that I guess I'm formally trained, I'm qualified in the field of sports nutrition, so it is professional advice you can trust, it's the gold standard in sports nutrition advice, um, so that's that's important. Try to be very careful about who you're comparing yourself to. The people you're comparing yourself to most likely, A, know very little about nutrition or diet, B, are significantly more likely to have relative energy deficiency osteoporosis menstrual disturbances fertility issues um, osteoporosis again maybe I'm repeating myself here but it's not a healthy cohort they're also significantly more likely to be engaging or actively engage in disorder patterns of eating or in, indeed have eating disorders so it's probably not the healthiest 
population to compare yourself against in all fairness so that's that's something to take stock of and you know one thing i mentioned it was a personal anecdote analogy at the start of this episode it bothered me for a long time and i really kind of started to feed into that idea that athletes have to eat clean and chocolate would off was off the table and you couldn't have dessert and it would somehow make your performance worse and you're somehow sabotaging and undermining yourself if that's what you're doing i was a reds case that's really why my my career as an athlete ended it wasn't formally diagnosed at the time but retrospectively i had every one of the symptoms many of the hallmarks i was under fueling i was following a ketogenic diet in college when my career fell apart sport wise and it had stemmed from that single conversation that single interaction with a athlete who was older than me who i thought this person knows what they're talking about that was all it took to sow the seed and the belief from a young age that athletes must follow specific eating patterns to be good athletes so be very very careful um with how you I guess let information in and evaluate some of your food rules you know if you indeed say things like i'm an athlete therefore i cannot or i should not do a b and c challenge that really think about that and you might save yourself an awful lot of hassle i do hope you found this episode interesting and at least insightful or informative hopefully it passed a 30 minute run or 30 minute on a turbo for somebody or 30 minute drive if you do like the podcast, I would appreciate if you could indeed give it a share. It does mean a lot to me. And we are going to be releasing episodes bi-weekly from now on. I mean it this time. We are going to be more consistent with those. I do have a couple of interesting guests lined up as well. Experts in the field of sports nutrition, clinical sports nutrition, and some general health stuff. So keep an eye out for all of that too. Anyways, thank you for listening. And yeah, until next time. This episode was sponsored by Ireland's most trusted fitness equipment store, RPM Power. Use code FUELBETTER10 for a 10% discount across their range of products. So thanks again to RPM Power for fueling today's episode. If you guys would like to work with my team and I, the link is in the show notes to do that. Or you can hit us up on our website, southeastnutritionclinic.com. You can also find us on social media at Southeast Nutrition Clinic or you can email me evan at southeastnutritionclinic.com for all your sporting, health and well-being needs. We have our consultation clinic which is open all year round and we are currently taking on athletes for our coaching programs for both performance nutrition, weight management and clinical nutrition. If that's something that is of interest to you, please feel free to reach out for a free discovery call. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.